Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everybody. On this episode of 30 with Murdy, as we find ourselves smack in the middle of football season, a conversation with the preeminent football writer of our time, Peter King. Long time of Sports Illustrated, of course, now with NBC Sports. But this conversation isn't about football, it's about baseball. Peter's first love as a sports fan in New England in the 1960s, rooting for Carl Yastrzemski in the Red Sox in 1967. And before he began covering football full-time in 1984, Peter spent four years writing a lot of baseball for the Cincinnati Inquirer from 1980 to 83. At that time, the Cincinnati Reds were spiraling down from their dynasty years of the 1970s, but they still had some of the game's biggest personalities, and Peter has some great stories about them all. Shagging flies with Johnny Bench, making an awkward phone call to Tom Seaver, talking football with Pete Rose, and covering Ken Griffey Jr. in Little League are all part of this trip through the early years of Peter King's career in journalism. For all that and more, here is my conversation with the great Peter King. Well, Pete, I want to talk to you about baseball, which is something different than you usually get to talk about. And one thing I find kind of interesting is that I read somewhere once that people always want, baseball fans always want the game to be exactly what it was like when they were 10 years old. So I like to think about, you know, sports fans and who they are, where they were when they were 10. 10 years old for you in New England must have been a pretty special time in 1967 watching Carl Yastrzemski and the Red Sox. Yeah, I was a huge Red Sox fan, Sweeney. Uh, and in fact, until I was cut from my uh, my college baseball team in nineteen in the fall of nineteen seventy five, I went to Ohio University at the time. It was a big uh, it was a big baseball school. Mike Schmidt went there. Uh, Steve Swisher. They had a bunch of people uh, play big league baseball from there. And when I went to college in 1975, I wanted to walk on to the baseball team. Um, and uh, so I went, I walked onto the baseball team and the day I went to walk on tryouts, there were 143 people who went there. And so uh, uh, I, that sort of, and, and Hey, Hey, look, I wanted to uh, play left field for the Red Sox. I wanted to be Yaz. <laughs> And, uh, but that didn't quite work out. So then, you know, when I was, when I was in high school, like my junior and senior years, my dad was a little bit of a newspaper guy, a buff. And we used to get a bunch of papers at our house in Connecticut. And that was just about the time that Peter Gammons was writing his full page column in the Boston Globe. And I said, well, maybe if I can't play left field for the Red Sox, I could I could write this column one day and it's really weird, but I look at what I do right now 
uh, and my NFL column is sort of being, you know, birthed in some ways and really influenced a lot by Peter Gammons. Uh, and uh, I really owe him a lot, honestly. I doubt he even knows that, but I do owe him a lot. That's tremendous. Um, I think Bob Brenly was probably there about the same That's time right. you yeah. were too, right? Yeah. Around that time. Uh, so take me back to 1967, though. What's I, I Listen, I was 10 years old when the Phillies won the World Series, and I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I remember feeling what it was like to wake up as a 10-year-old and your team has won the World Series. When you're 10 years old, everything seems to revolve around this. I always think it's kind of like the perfect age, too, because you have enough education to read the newspapers every day and figure out what's happening. You have just enough math skills to do batting averages and earn run averages. It's kind of a fun time to be a fan, and the impossible dream team was basically like all of New England was geared in on that back then, wasn't it? I have a lot of memories of that year. Probably my most vivid one is the fact that, um, you know, in so many ways, it was a, it was really what, I mean, look, I was a big sports fan. My dad uh, made me that. My two older brothers were huge, huge sports fans. Um, And, uh, you know, the one thing that I will, uh, there's two things really. I will always remember about that year, okay? And you think, wow, it must have been a time of great joy and all that stuff. But I just, I just can't forget that year, uh, Tony Canigliaro uh, getting beaned by Jack Hamilton of the California Angels on a Friday night in August. One of the reasons why it's so vivid in my mind, Sweeney, and for those who may not remember, and clearly it was 53 years ago. So unless you're a person of a certain age or a baseball nut, you wouldn't really realize that Tony Canigliaro in 1967 was on the verge of being maybe not Mike Trout, maybe not Mookie Betts, but something damn close. I would say George Springer plus. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so on a Friday night in August, I was listening to the game on the radio because in our family, the Red Sox were on, if it wasn't a TV game, and there were very few of them in those days, it was uh, on the radio. And that night we were listening to Ken Coleman and Ned Martin, um, you know, talk about the Red Sox game against the Angels. And obviously Tony Canigliaro got hit by the pitch. It was very dramatic. And one of the reasons it's so vivid to me is that the next day, that was my one day in 1967, that I went to the Red Sox game and we would go once a year. And that game, we went on Saturday afternoon, I think August 20, 1967. And it's crazy. But the one thing I will never forget about that game is before the game, when the angels pitchers walked out to the bullpen as pitching staffs do relief pitching staffs walked out to the bullpen, the entire stadium stood and booed Jack Hamilton lustily. Wow. And I booed too, but I felt terrible for him because I, I thought he didn't mean to do this. And, but anyway, that, that is one memory. But the other memory really is uh, I was a nerdy little scorekeeping kid. And so down the stretch of the season, I was keeping score of every game at home. And uh, the Red Sox won on the last day of the season. And I remember throwing my, uh, little score pad and score sheet up into the air along with the pencil and the pencil made a big mark on the ceiling 
in my living room in Enfield, Connecticut. <laughs> but anyway, it was all it was all good. It was a great way to grow up. Uh, and uh, I just I enjoyed that year so much because it was so unlikely. Isn't it one of the things we really love about sports when something so bizarre happens that you just there's no way you, you could have ever envisioned this happening, but it happened. Yeah. And that's so much more fun than going in as a heavy favorite and winning as a heavy favorite because <laughs> everybody expected that to happen. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun that year. The I think if I know one thing to be true about everybody in our industry, we're notorious pack rats, and we end up finding things from our youth that uh, you know probably end up shaping our careers more or another. Have you ever found that notebook or anything else from when no. you were a kid? You know what happened? Uh, we've moved a lot. We've moved, I think, eight times. Now, I live in Brooklyn now, but we've moved a lot even since I came to work in New York in 1985 when I went to work for Newsday. So in the, in the, you know, in moving so many times, I've lost so many things that I wish I still had. That would be one of them. Uh, I do have uh, a 1968 Fenway Park scorecard with Brooks Robinson's uh, autograph in pen uh, on the, on the front of it. And in 1969, one of my prized possessions, really, I became a Ted Williams nerd. Um, I, I had it, I, he had two books. Uh, one was called the science of hitting and one was called my turn at bat. And I remember I went to, when he managed the Washington senators in 1969, they had a day night doubleheader at Fenway park in September, I think on a Saturday, if I'm not mistaken, but my dad, uh, said, let's go. So we went, I, we went to both games. And before the second game, which was, I think, at 7.30, before the second game, I was hanging around the Senator's dugout uh, with my turn at bat. And Ted Williams, believe it or not, this was so different in those days. He had brought the lineup card out uh, for the second game. And my father thought, oh, there's no way you're going to get his autograph. He brought the lineup card out and he was coming back to the dugout and I showed him my book. I was alone right there. I showed him my book and I said, Mr. Williams, can you sign this? And he said, yeah, send it over. So I tossed the book with the big pen and he signed it and he sent it back to me. And probably 15 seconds later, (laughs) there was the first pitch of the game. (laughs) So, I mean, it was just, so I have that, but most of the other stuff that I wish I had, I don't. It's unfortunate, but that's uh, I, I. I probably was a pack rat at one point, but after you move so many times, you say, "I got to get rid of all this crap." <laughs> I've started to do that too. I've I found one saving grace is the iPhone. I can take a picture of it, have it, and then throw <laughs> it away. It's a, it's all good. So I want to take you to the beginning of your um, your uh, journalism career. Uh, after college, at the Cincinnati Inquirer, you start covering some Reds games. You told me you're a backup, and so there's a few years here where, now, at the age when you're growing up, Tom Seaver and Johnny Bench are two of the biggest names in the entire sport. Now, in 1980, you start covering Reds games, and Tom Seaver and Johnny Bench are guys you can just walk up to and talk to. Um, 
I think we've all grown to a point in our professional lives where we're not starstruck anymore, but it all begins a certain way. What do you remember about walking into the Reds clubhouse and seeing those two guys specifically for the first time? Um, you're absolutely right. You know, Sweeney, I, uh, when I went to Ohio University, that was in those days, I lived in a big dorm and there's one TV in the dorm. It was in the basement. And just imagine the Cincinnati Reds are the powers of baseball in 75, 76, 77. And so, man, baseball was so much bigger than it is today. So every time there was a big game or a World Series game, there'd be 100 boys in, in the TV room watching the Reds. And so I remember that I watched so many of their big games and obviously the Reds Red Sox world series was when I was a freshman in college. And that was really, I was, I was the only person in the, <laughs> in the TV room who was rooting, you know, not rooting for the Reds. But anyway, what I really, what I really remember a lot about my time in Cincinnati, quite honestly, and I'll tell you is the graciousness of both Johnny bench and Tom Seaver. And I'll tell you a story about each one. Johnny Bench, when I came on, I was this, you know, that most of the beat writers in those days were, were older gentlemen. You know, Earl Lawson, who covered the, the Reds for the Cincinnati Post, the afternoon paper, was probably about 70 years old and he was nearing the end. So they were, they were older guys and they had been doing this forever. Hal McCoy, even at that time, was a veteran, you know, so he'd been doing it for a while. And uh, and so that that was that was a time when when you're a young kid, they don't have to do anything for you. And I'll never forget one of the first times I was standing around the batting cage trying to introduce myself and trying to talk to players. I literally went up to Johnny Bench. I shook his hand. I said, uh, hey, Johnny, I'm Peter King with the, the Inquirer. I'm going to be uh, backing up Ray Buck, who at the time was the beat guy. I'm going to be backing up Ray Buck. And, and I just wanted to introduce myself. And he says, oh, hey, how you doing, Peter? And, and so Sweeney, at the time, and I'm sure it's pretty much the same way, there was, there was this heavy twine that was on the back of the batting cage so that when a foul ball came back, it wouldn't go through the, sure. the, the cage, obviously. And I had my fingers just inside the <laughs> twine holding on to the bar in the batting cage. And the first thing after Bench said, hey, good to meet you, he says, hey, you better get your hand out of there. You'll get a finger broken. And, and so I just thought, wow, that's nice of him to say that. <laughs> the, the other thing about Bench that was so interesting, um, so the backup beat writer – for the Cincinnati Inquirer would go on one road trip a year. And usually it would be like a 10 day trip, maybe Atlanta, St. Louis, Chicago, something like that. So I did that maybe three times. And this, this first time I did it um, was in 1980. And I remember what was so interesting about this is that we were in St. Louis and after the first game of the series, there's an old, there was a Marriott hotel right across the street from old Bush stadium. 
And so the players just walked back and forth to to the thing. And so after the game, I had finished writing and I came back to the hotel and Johnny Bench saw me and he goes, hey, Peter, what are you doing in the morning? I said, nothing. He says, you want to come over and shag for us batting practice? And I said, F yeah, (laughs) of course I do. So I went over with a guy named Rich Gale. He was a veteran pitcher and Johnny Bench. Dwayne Walker and Paul Householder went over to have early BP. Joe Nuxhall, color man and former Reds pitcher, pitched. And I went out on the uh, excessively hot AstroTurf at about 11 o'clock in the morning for an hour and a half just running all over the place, shagging balls with Rich Gale in the outfield. Uh, and trying to catch line drives from Johnny Bench. So uh, that I remember very well. And the last memory I have was in 1982, I was on another one of these road trips. The Reds were playing poorly. John McNamara was under fire. He was the manager. And Dick Wagner, who was the GM, called him and said, hey, I want you to play. We're calling up um, this, uh, this second baseman. Uh, named Tommy Lawless from Louisville and we're calling him up and we want you to play him and start him lead bat him lead off and you got to move Ron Oster to third base so McNamara was pissed off that he was being told what to do so that night obviously as as everybody still does in baseball that night uh you meet the manager meets with the writers there's four writers covering the team and I'm one of them. And as we, uh, as we get ready to leave, John McNamara says, hey, Peter, you stay. Uh, and he said, close the door. And so he, <clears throat> McNamara then told me, in essence, this was not my call. I did not want to do this. Um, and, uh, and I wrote it. And three days later, McNamara got fired. Wow. And, and, and uh, McNamara knew exactly what he was doing. Sure. Obviously, he's a veteran. Even at that time, he was kind of a grizzled guy. And that was six, four years before the World Series with the Red Sox. I think it was 1982. Yep. But, but what was so interesting about it is I really learned the rules and the rhythm of how baseball works. I really enjoyed it a lot. I'll tell you my very quick Tom Seaver story. Tom Seaver... Uh, every day when I would walk into the clubhouse at Riverfront Stadium, Tom Seaver was sitting there cross-legged uh, in a director's chair at his locker doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. And I'll never forget introducing myself to him the first day, first time I was there. And uh, I said to him, I, hey, listen, I, I, uh, you know, it's a little awkward, but I really, if, if, if I wouldn't abuse it, do you mind giving me your home phone number? He says, no, here's the number. He said, call me anytime, you know, just don't basically don't abuse it. And I forget if it was that year or the next year, but he got a DUI. So I had to call him at home one day on an off day and ask him about his DUI. (laughs) And I was thinking he probably now regrets giving me his phone number. (laughs) But anyway, that was, it was great to cover baseball. I just thought Sweeney that I became, I started covering the Bengals in 1984. And I really felt like, even though I loved baseball and thought it'd be fun to cover it, 
those four beat guys who, uh, when I started covering the Reds, every single one of them was divorced. Oh, wow. You know? And so I, here I am, you know, got married in 1980. We had our first child in 1983. And I just said to myself, man, that's not really the way I want my life to go. So anyway, to football, I went. That's uh, yeah, it's a lifestyle change for sure. One of the things that, you know, you illustrated this a lot in just what you things you're talking about, the access in baseball, the access time, especially in years past, was so much different than any other sport. All the time pregame and then again postgame. Uh, it's regulated quite a bit in the other sports and in baseball, it's come down a little bit, but it's still greater than the other sports. Yeah. As a young guy who's in this business uh, and your job is to is to navigate a clubhouse and work a room and make contacts and just write good stories. How much did you appreciate what kind of access you were able to, I mean, you just talked about shagging fly balls. I mean, this is not something that everybody gets to do in any other sport. It's a certain type of advantage to be able to have that much unfettered time around these guys. No question. And I, I love that about baseball. I think it's fantastic. And it's something that, you know, football to some degree tries to emulate, but it really just doesn't work because in baseball and look, Sweeney, I do not go in baseball clubhouses. Now I go to games and watch the games. So I don't really know how it works right now, but at that time, the vast majority of players, would be just hanging around the clubhouse um, and you could pick them off. That was even when, you know, look, when you look around the clubhouse and there's Dave Concepcion and, and Dan Dreesen and George Foster at a little bit later date. And I'll never forget in 1980. uh, I'll never forget that most times when you're the backup guy um, in those days, anyway, most times what you would have to do is uh, cover the other team a lot sure. and, and do clubhouse stuff with the other team. And, and I mean, I thought it was really, really interesting. I remember in, in 1980, I got assigned one day to go over to the Phillies clubhouse when they were in town to play the Reds and Pete to do Rose. something with Pete Rose. And I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious when I say I just walked up to Pete Rose um, who was I, I mean, this might be Stewie, probably the most famous baseball player alive yeah. in 1980. And and walked up to Pete Rose and uh, introduced myself. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He said, I, I saw I saw your name in the paper. And and I mean, I, I, I was like taken aback. You saw my name in the paper. He's, <laughs> he notices who's writing the stories. Yeah. And and he was asking about other people who worked at the paper who he knew. And so that day, I don't know, I just shot the breeze with them for 20 minutes. And uh, I ended up really, uh, because Pete, obviously, even when he wasn't playing for the Reds, those years that I was doing it, he was playing uh, for the Phillies. And I forget if, if, if he was with Montreal, if I, if I still did it by then. But I think, so he would come, they would come in, there would always be a Pete Rose story to do. Mm -hmm. And he got to know my name. And it's funny, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, Pete was doing, uh, you know, TV work. And I I would see him 
at, at various things and he remembers me and, and talks about me. He loves football yeah. and would always want to talk about football. I don't know if it was for gambling purposes or not. <laughs> Probably. But anyway, it just, he was, uh, I, I, look, I never covered him as a, you know, as a, as a newsmaker, but it was always really good to me. Uh, I have a feeling that one of the kids running around the clubhouse was Ken Griffey Jr. at some point, right? Yes. Yeah. Hey, Sweeney, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a really weird story. In 1982, or what year? No, 1981, 1981. So this is really, I, I, I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting uh, to this day, but I don't know how many people would find it interesting. That, that year when there was a baseball strike, yeah. what I will never forget is, and I'm, I'm guessing he was around 11 or 12 years old. Yep. Yeah because there was no baseball, the Inquirer sports editor one day sent me out to cover one of Ken Griffey Jr.'s Little League games. Really? And it wasn't called Little League in Cincinnati. It was called Knothole. All right. And I went to cover one of his games. And there was his dad sitting there and, and everything. And so it, it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty odd, you know, being in Cincinnati. At the time, it, you, I look back and – the Cincinnati Reds covering them in, you know, 80, 81, 82, even though it was kind of the decline of the big red machine, the end of it, uh, it, it, it was as big there as covering the Giants in 1986 for Newsday was. And, you know, the rise of this little uh, micro dynasty uh, that was so huge in the New York area. But, man, the Reds were big. I wonder what you thought then as you take your Red Sox fandom into 1986 and the manager of that team is a guy who, you know, you had some personal relationship with and the series ends the way it does. And there's so much raining down on John McNamara. Um, I know when I see things like this with people that I know or have covered, you, you feel a little something for them. It's not black and white as a fan anymore. You just kind of, if you know the person, you feel for kind of what they're going through. Did any of that sink into your mind in 1986 as you're watching John McNamara and the Red I Sox? I mean, I felt for John McNamara, but by that time, I, I hate to say this, I really didn't, I wasn't attached to John McNamara. I was just pulling for the Red Sox yeah. to win the World Series. And I was at game six at Shea Stadium in the worst seat in the house. My wife and I went, we were in the last row of the upper deck way over behind the left field foul pole. And um, I just have vivid memories of standing there with every other fan as that grounder goes to Bill Buckner and it goes through his legs. And I just remember everybody else stayed and cheered and went crazy. And I said to my wife, let's go. And I did not say a word for the next hour and a half um, till we got in the car um, and we drove home to New Jersey, I just, I didn't say a word. And I just was so, I was pretty despondent. (laughs) The one other memory about that World Series, it's interesting. So that was Saturday night. Yeah. Uh, It was already raining when we left uh, Shea. And uh, Sunday, it rained heavily. So the game Sunday, which was supposed to be game seven, got postponed. And then they were going to play it Monday night. Yeah. Huge Monday night football game. Yep. 
Giants, Washington at the Meadowlands. And I hate to say it, but that's the one day that I should give my money back to uh, the people who own Newsday <laughs> because I stood in the back of the press box for probably half the game. I just kept going back there and looking at it. And the Red Sox had a 3 nothing lead in game seven and ended up losing. So, yeah, I remember... <laughs> I remember that too. That was the that was the most distracted I'd ever been at a football game. And the cheer goes up, right? I guess when Ray Knight hits his home run, everybody in the stands yeah. they're listening on their radios, and yeah. just at an odd moment in a football game, all of a sudden the whole stadium erupts in cheers. Yeah, that's they're, right. They're Mets fans, not Red Sox fans. For you, I want I want to see you know. Listen, you talked about Johnny Bench, and in the short time that. Uh, since you and I put this together, this is the only thing I was able to find. This is a lead from the night that Johnny Bench broke Yogi Berra's record for most home runs by a catcher. You wrote the story the next day in Cincinnati Inquirer, and the lead is, for a moment, Johnny Bench looked like Carlton Fisk in the 1975 World Series, urging his epic home run to stay fair. That's a pretty significant milestone event there, and it had some pretty good coverage. Uh, the picture I saw um, has Johnny and his and his mom is in the stands, and, I mean, you mentioned the connection you had with him. You've even t- you even went to his boyhood home, right, in Oklahoma? Yeah. Yeah, I've been in his house in Binger, Oklahoma, because um, Johnny Bench really – he he was he was legendary, just legendary in Cincinnati. People loved him. He was such a good guy. He was good to everybody. And um, I just I have vivid memories of when I told him I was going to do a story in his hometown. He just gave me a list of all the people, all the phone numbers. It, you know, he said, "Hey, here are my relatives. Here's everybody." And I went down there, and I I don't know. I was probably there for three days. I kind of wish I had that story still. Hmm. I mean, I've not kept, I don't have any, you just read me something that I had totally forgotten. Hmm. So I, I, I mean, I'm not one of these people. Like I, I said the other day when I was clean, doing a little bit of cleanup in my office, I got to get my covers at SI, you know, I just, yeah. it's, I just never have been, and I will, I'll find some way to get them. I'll get them. But I've just never been the type of person to, 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 to save a lot of things that I have done. It's a weird thing to say, because now that you mentioned that story, you know, I I obviously wish that I could have a bunch of those stories back. And, but I think I've just been sort of, it's been sort of drilled into my head over the years that it doesn't matter what you did today. What are you going to do tomorrow? Um, One of the things uh, that I think you and I both had the pleasure of doing as we cover our own individual sports um the olympics affords an opportunity to kind of spread out a little bit and i found this looking up something i was doing a few months ago with lisa fernandez i did a podcast with her the uh, u.s olympic softball legend and i wanted to talk to her because the extra innings rule is coming into baseball and i remember this fantastic game that she pitched uh, in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, where she takes a perfect game through seven innings. It's a nothing-nothing game, eight innings, nine innings. And in the 10th inning, she gives up a two-run homer because there's a person on second base and loses a game two-to-one on the only runner that's legitimately gotten on against her. <laughs> it, uh, and, you know, I, I've always remembered this game because I was covering it for Westwood One Radio. I was actually watching it on a monitor, but I remember the uh, everything about the, the game. 
And then I looked up a story and you wrote the SI story about this game. So, I mean, and yeah. it's funny trying to encapsulate this, this really amazing moment into a, a one pager in SI for, uh, for the Olympics. Do you remember this? I remember it very well. Um, because here's what happened, Sweeney. This is really, really interesting that, um, in that year, Sports Illustrated did a daily magazine at the Olympics. Right. That's right. And what was, what was really interesting about the game, about that particular game, is that, uh, and that series, they had me, they had writers cover specific sports. And I covered because uh, my daughter um, was a very young softball player at the time. My daughter, Mary Beth, she actually came to that game and sat in the stands. Uh, And so, but what I remember is that I was interviewing at the Olympics. It's hard because you're, you're separated by either a fence or whatever. And uh, at that Olympics, there was, there was a really good player for the U S team named Danny Tyler, but she was also sort of a goat. Um, for a game, for a game that they that they lost at the Olympics, this game that you're talking about, and so I did a long story with her, and I ended up talking to her for a long time, and I mentioned that my daughter was a softball player, and she took off her batting glove and she handed it to me, and and said, "Give this to your daughter and tell her I hope she has a great career." Wow. And but that was interesting. It was in Columbus, Georgia. So you'd commute down to Columbus, you'd drive down to Columbus and go through all the Olympic protocol, you know, where only the media can go and all that and, uh, and cover these games. But yeah, I loved covering the Olympics. It was so much fun. I covered the Olympics in South Korea in 1988. Um, That was great fun, but having some of the experience I've had, the odd experiences like, covering Olympic games have really made really made a great huge difference in my career. I've loved doing it. So I want to end on this with you. You've, you've done Super Bowls. You've been to world series as a fan or whatever you've covered Olympics. Is there an event uh, that you would like to write about or cover in person that you haven't yet? Uh, I'd really like to cover a political campaign. Um, I I thought for a long time that what I wanted to do was cover a complete baseball season. And every day from the start of spring training to the last pitch of the world series, if the team I covered was in it or to the last pitch of their season, I would love to document that. But I think the only way you can do that is to really have great access and also be willing to go every single day. Um, and the thought of covering 162 games and then maybe another six weeks in spring training, I think that would even test my affection for baseball. <laughs> um, but a political campaign, I think, would be fun because there's such interesting traditions about doing it. And I think I would like to cover whoever, the, if I ever did this, say in 24 or 28, whoever the Pete Buttigieg is. You know, whoever the upstart, whoever the the person trying to pull the big upset and see whether they uh, make it 
down the road or whether they end up going up in flames. And obviously the high likelihood is that at some point they go up in flames, but sort of, you know, documenting the hope of the new person, man, woman, black, white, whatever, I think would really be fun. So who knows? I may do that one day when I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, it seems to me, it's crazy. It seems a little bit more manageable covering every baseball game for <laughs> seven and a half months. It's funny, but that has the sports connection to it because you said we all love the underdog story and what that becomes. Yeah. You know, it's not about being the front runner, and there's certainly an element of that to that. Uh, Pete, listen, thank you so much for the time. Um, I, I know baseball was a long time ago in your professional career, but I'm glad you still have very fond memories of it and vivid memories of it for our sake. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sweeney. Really appreciate it and really enjoy your work a lot. I follow you. You're doing a great, great job. My thanks to Peter King for his time during an always busy football season to reflect back on some baseball with me and for his kind words. So meaningful coming for someone who I've looked up to in this business for an awfully long time. You can catch Peter on NBC Football Night in America. Subscribe to the Peter King Podcast. And you can read his columns at profootballtalk.nbcsports.com. If you've missed any of our episodes, please check out the archive at radio.com and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.